We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Reamer. Today, CDI expert Melissa Potts from Mahima reports on the new CDI query brief released yesterday. We will learn more about the 2023 E&M guideline and code updates from Colleen Deganichak. Lori Johnson delivers her coding report. Dr. John Zellum adds another entry in his journaling John M.D. Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk, and Dr. Reamer presents her talkback segment. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and an actor who's often mistaken for Tim Allen's TV neighbor on home improvement, Chuck Buck. <laughs> Thanks, Clark, very much. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 526 live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And good morning, Erica. <laughs> good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Hey, you know, this is a big day for us here at Talk 10 Tuesday. As you heard Clark Anthony announce, Melissa Potts from AHIMA is going to join us later in the broadcast. She's going to report on the new AHIMA practice brief for compliant queries. Yes, I had a chance to read it yesterday, and I was blown away at how good and comprehensive it is. I'll go over particulars in next week's talk back. All right. So, uh, thanks, Erica. What's the subject of your talk back today? My talk back today is about leading queries and whether they are law or lore. Mm-hmm. Law or lore. Looking forward to hearing your talkback segment. We have much news reporting. We begin, of course, this morning with Tim Pelt. Tim is at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. Thanks, Chuck. And today I want to talk about the new refi on data. Will it help patients? CMS wants providers to have a centralized location to update their data. CMS has put out a Request for Information, or RFI, seeking comment on how a CMS-led directory could reduce directory maintenance burdens on providers and payers by creating a single, centralized system promoting real-time accuracy for patients. According to CMS, easy access to accurate and useful provider directory information is critical for patients trying to find health care that is best meets their individualized needs and preferences, said CMS Administrator Shakita Brooks-Lashur. CMS is seeking comment on how a national directory of healthcare providers and services could better serve patients and reduce unnecessary burden placed on providers to maintain dozens of separate directories. We look forward to hearing from our stakeholders on the need for a single source for this information for the entire health sector. Wait, isn't this what the National Plan and Provider Enumeration System, or NPPS, is doing? Isn't this why we created the National Provider Identifiers, or MPIs? My question is this, why is CMS adding another hoop for providers to enter and potentially post inaccurate data when CMS already has the data in their own portals? In addition to NPPS, CMS requires providers to enter licensing information in the Provider Enrollment Chain and Ownership System, or PICOS. PICOS is a system that maintains eligibility data and ownership data for providers. This is not the last portal that providers need to update. If you need specific data from Medicare, a provider must log in through the CMS portal. While PICOS and the CMS portal are somewhat integrated, most providers spend hours a year sweating out changes based on staffing changes. In addition, all users of the portal have to register as individuals and then request access from the administrative users. Almost every provider has struggled when the person with administrative rights leaves or when a new staff needs to have access to the CMS portal. So instead of CMS integrating data from PICOS, the CMS portal, and MPPS, they want to create a new system to provide data to patients. My first suggestion to CMS would be to integrate the data they already have and not require providers to enter anything into yet another system. And with that, back to you, Chuck. 
Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and the national correspondent for ICD-10 Monitor. It is Tuesday. It's October the 11th, and you're listening to the 526 Live Edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Dramatic constant change is the new norm for society and for healthcare. With so much upheaval, you must adopt new practices and protocols, including how you access continuing education. It's important to stay current with ICD-10 coding best practices and the latest rules. Plus, CEUs are still needed to maintain professional credentials. Now get critical continuing education with a subscription to ICD-10 Monitor Educational Webcasts. For one affordable annual fee, Everyone on your team can access dozens of exclusive ICD-10 Monitor webcasts, covering a comprehensive range of timely, vital topics. Is an ICD-10 Monitor subscription right for you? Visit ICD-10Monitor.com to learn more about a webcast subscription. Now it's time for the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report with Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori Johnson. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and I hope you're all wearing your pink. We code breast cancer using the neoplasm table, and the sites include areola, axillary tail, central portion, inner, lower, lower inner quadrant, lower outer quadrant, mastectomy site, which includes with a non- um, the non-essential modifier of skin, and midline, nipple, outer, overlapping lesion, and skin. These entries will direct you to cate- the category of C50 breast cancer and the subcategory of C44.5 breast cancer of the skin. There is a use additional code note for estrogen receptor stap- status Z17.0 or Z17.1. The fifth digit in the category C50 will identify the gender of the patient. The digit 1 indicates a female and 2 indicates a male. There is an there is also an includes note which says that C50 includes connective tissue of the breast, Piaget's disease of the breast, Piaget's disease of the nipple. When the patient has completed treatment and there's no sign of malignancy, assign code Z85.3 for history of breast cancer. The official coding and reporting guidelines for 2023 section 1B.13 address laterality. If the condition exists on both sides and there is no code for bilateral, assign a code for each side. If the provider does not document the affected side, it is appropriate to use documentation by other clinicians. If there is conflicting documentation, query the provider. According to the guidelines, section uh, section 1.c.2.e, if the patient is admitted solely for radiation therapy, assign Z51.0. For antineoplastic chemotherapy, assign Z51.11. And for um, antineoplastic immunotherapy, assign Z51.12. 
Don't forget to support your community activities for Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And with that, Erica, back to you. Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson, Senior Healthcare Consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And thank you again, Lori Johnson, for an excellent report. Returning once again with her very popular series on the 2023 E&M Code Updates is Senior Healthcare Consultant Colleen Deegan Ejack. So good morning, Colleen. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning to the Talk 10 Tuesday listeners. Today's segment is on the 2023 revisions to the E&M category of home services. Five things about the revisions to this E&M category that you should know. Number one a name change to the category. For 2023, this E&M category will be titled Home or Resident Services. Number two, the E&M categories domiciliary, rest home or custodial home services, excuse me, custodial care services, and the category for care plan oversight are deleted for 2023 with clear direction as to how to report these services in 2023. Number three, the guidelines. Home or resident subsection parenthetical notes or guidelines indicate that these codes are used to report services provided in a home or a residence. A home may be defined as a private residence, temporary lodging, or short-term accommodation such as a hotel or a campground, a hostel, or even a cruise ship. These codes are used to report services when the resident is in an assisted living facility, a group home that is not licensed, as an intermediate care facility for individuals with intellectual disabilities, a custodial care facility or resident substance abuse treatment facility. For services in in an intermediate care facility for individuals with intellectual disabilities and services provided in a psychiatric residence treatment, the parenthetical notes direct the provider or the coder to the nursing facility services E&M category. A lot to digest there. The Medicare Claims Processing Manual states that a home visit cannot be billed by a provider unless the provider is actually present in the beneficiary's home. Number four, code 99344 is deleted. For 2023, both categories will have five, excuse me, four levels of service, straightforward, low, moderate, and high risk of medical decision-making. And number five, as with the above-mentioned categories, the Home and Resident Services E&M category, these changes align with the 2021 revisions made to the office and other outpatient services codes. That means that the three key components of the history, the exam, and the medical decision-making are no longer required for reporting these services. The guidelines state that a medically appropriate history or physical as determined by the physician or the non-physician practitioner should be documented and the level of service is determined solely by the level of medical decision making or time. The American Medical Association, the authors of the CPT book, redefined what time includes for level selection. Time is now the total time on the date of the encounter and includes both the face-to-face time and the non-face-to-face time. Within this category, there is a parenthetical note, may seem obvious to some, but states that travel time should not be counted towards total time when using time to select the level of service. 
Coding professionals should be aware of these revisions because there is an increase in home calls or home visits. They are increasing for patients who, number one, can't leave their home, and number two, for those who prefer home visits. So it's, 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 it was on the decline and it's on the increase again. And reimbursement is, of course, affected by these changes. If your doctors travel to a, their patient's home, I encourage you to be ready for these changes to begin by reading through the changes to the CNM category, which can be found on the American Medical Association's website at www.ama-assn.org. And I hope that you'll turn, tune in next week when I discuss the revisions to prolonged services. There is some differences between the AMA's ver revisions and what the 2023 Medicare Physician Fee Schedule proposed rule states about prolonged services. And with that, back to you, Erica. Thanks, Colleen. Yeah, that prolonged services is going to be quite an interesting topic to discuss. That was Colleen yeah. Deegan Ejak. Colleen is a senior healthcare consultant for 3M Health. Chuck? Thank you, Erica, and be sure to read Colleen's reports. We have been uh, publishing her reports on the 2023 E&M code updates in ICD-10 Monitor. Now we continue with our series here on Talking Tuesdays called Journaling John MD, and here now is Dr. John Zellum. Good morning, Dr. Zellum. Good morning, sir, and good morning to everybody. Today's topic is, what is a swing bed? Unless you have been exposed to rural hospitals, you may not be familiar with the term swing bed. What exactly is it? It's actu it actually is a simple and effective solution for rural hospitals with less than 100 beds, <clears throat> including critical access hospitals, with a Medicare agreement allowing them to use their beds for acute or skilled services. According to the 2020 CMS Interpretive Guideline for Swing Beds in Critical Access Hospitals, a swing bed is a change in reimbursement status. Essentially, a critical access hospital can use its, swing, its beds interchangeably for either acute care or post-acute care. The reimbursement, quote, swings, end of quote, from billing for acute care services to billing for post-acute skilled nursing services, despite the fact that the patient usually stays in the same bed in the same physical location. Benefits to rural hospitals are many, including continuing to serve their communities and often contributing to positive operating margins, especially in today's atmosphere of rural hospitals' financial challenges. The swing bed program as a reimbursement mechanism was part of the 1980 Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Project. Swing bed programs also directly impact local rural residents. Since it is a patient-centric, post-acute care solution, these patients may find themselves too well to stay in the urban hospital, but too sick to go back to their own homes. Few models exist that serve patient, hospital, and community, as well as the swing bed program does. In addition, having a swing bed program keeps the post-acute care local, a benefit not just for patients, but for their families and their community, since rural hospitals may be 30 to 50 miles away from larger acute care facilities. Since it is the same bed in the same location and the same staff who provided their acute care, that same staff may very well have expertise often not found in alternative post-acute care settings like nursing homes. 
In addition, there are certain things that sometimes aren't done in a nursing home setting, either because it's a high cost item or involves processes done in such small numbers that the staff may not have the needed proficiency. For example, infusions. Because the swing bed is located within the hospital, one will have nurses who do infusions all the time. It's second nature to them. Therefore, the swing bed provides service levels that might otherwise not be done in the community. If the program were not there, patients would have to relocate from their local community to get those services. Swing bed reimbursement is key to understanding the program's benefits. If a hospital has additional patients in the swing bed program, that reduces the cost of care on the acute care side too. Finally, the goal of the swing bed program is to establish a relationship with the other hospitals so that they are the first hospital they consider when swing bed services are needed. It's a great concept and just one more reason we need to ensure the survival of rural hospitals. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, John. I think we're going to have some questions for you at the end. That was Dr. John Zellum, the founder and CEO of Streamline Solutions Consulting, and he's a physician advisor for Cameron Memorial Community Hospital and Adams Memorial Hospital, both in Indiana. Chuck? Thank you both. And a program note, you're listening to the 526 Live Edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. High-quality clinical documentation plays an essential role in getting paid correctly and improving patient outcomes. The Essentials for Clinical Documentation Integrity book uses a three-step approach to cover possible clinical indicators, risk factors, and treatments, all of which enable effective chart reviews and physician queries. The Essentials for Clinical Documentation Integrity book is the easiest and fastest navigation of any CDI how-to resource. Here's good news. When you purchase the book, you'll receive absolutely free a webcast, severe malnutrition, increased coding compliance with clinical validation. That's a $149 value. Purchase the book, Essentials for Clinical Documentation Integrity, and get a free webcast, severe malnutrition, increased coding compliance with clinical validation. That's a $149 value. Take advantage of this offer. Enter discount code FI031722 at checkout. Coming up next, our lead story with Melissa Potts calling in from AHIMA. Our lead story is brought to you by Hitex, a clinical informatics organization dedicated to bringing the most advanced technology and people to assist healthcare professionals at the point of care. Find them at Hitex.com. Here now is Melissa Potts. Good morning. Thanks for having me on today. Today, I want to briefly discuss the exciting update to the industry practice brief that was published yesterday, the 2022 Update Guidelines to Achieving a Compliant Query Practice. That was co-authored by Ahima and ACTA. First, I want to talk about a little housekeeping. After this podcast today, an article will be published authored by Tammy Combs that will provide a link to the practice brief and information on how to provide feedback. With this exciting update, we thought it would be important to allow as much industry feedback as possible. Therefore, there is a two-week open comment period. The open comment period will be from October 10th through October 25th, and the link to submit those comments is also provided in that article. Okay, so let's discuss some of the exciting changes to the practice brief. 
First, it's important to know that a human act has brought together subject matter experts from both organizations to update this practice brief. Both organizations thought it would be most beneficial and impactful to include individuals with diverse CDI backgrounds to ensure the practice brief would be all-encompassing. We know the landscape of our healthcare ecosystem is ever-changing, and we wanted to make sure that was reflected in this update. Some of the exciting changes that you'll find in the practice brief touch on updates to query guidelines, query templates, provider education, previous encounter information, clinical indicators, who to query, how to query, query policies and procedures, and query technology. Along with all of these updates, we knew it was important to make sure we also address the need for query compliance in all forms of the query practice, including computer-generated queries. We also dove into detail about items we know have been in question for the industry. For example, the answer option, unable to determine. We thought it would be important to address this issue and provide clear guidance on using that answer option of unable to determine and what it means when a provider responds with unable to determine. We also address another important topic of discussion in industry around clinical indicators and how many are required to have a compliant query. In this section, we want everyone to remember that clinical indicators will vary by patient, clinical scenario, and diagnosis. Therefore, there is no set number of clinical indicators that is required to have a compliant query. This not only applies to the query itself, but it also applies to the answer options on a multiple choice query. This came up actually yesterday when the presentation of the practice brief. So there was a question about answer options, and I wanted to be clear that in the practice brief, we do make this clear that the answer options that you provide on a multiple choice query also need to have the clinical indicators to support them. I also want to point out that we are addressing new and evolving technologies in the practice brief, but with a caveat that there is a dedicated white paper that clearly addresses many of these issues titled Compliant CDI Technology Standards. This was also co-authored by Human Access. It is important to read through and understand both documents so that your program remains compliant with the ever-evolving technology landscape that we are in today. Lastly, I want to remind everyone that we are now in this open comment period. Please read the article that is set to be released after this session today. Within that article, you will find the link to the practice brief and the link to use for the open comment section if you choose to use it. And thank you for having me on today, and that's back to you, Erica. Thank you very much, Melissa. Um, I have to say that I think it's really awesome that AHIMA and ACTUS collaborate um, to put out these practice briefs and position papers, white papers, whatever, um, because I think it's really important that there's input from both the, the yeah. HIM coding perspective and the um, clinical um, CDI perspective. I, I think it's really good that they collaborate. That was Melissa Potts, CDI practitioner with AHIMA and one of the authors of the 2022 Compliant Query Update. Chuck? Thank you both, and be sure to read the latest news on the new CDI practice brief for compliant queries. You're going to find my article in today's ICD-10 Monitor. ICD-10 Monitor and TIA Tech are teaming up to tackle inefficiencies in revenue cycle management to ensure that all your claims are captured and paid in a timely manner using smart technology. We want to make sure that you get the dollars where they are needed most, and that, of course, is providing patient care. So we're asking our audience to take this quick one-minute survey and tell us what is your biggest holdup in the revenue cycle management process. Clark. That is the question. What is the biggest holdup in your revenue cycle management process? 
A. The physician not creating or signing notes. B. The coding not completed or accurate. C. The biller not filing on time. D. Other. E. Not applicable. Chuck. Thanks, Clark. Here now is uh, Dr. Erica Reamer with her very popular segment here. It's called Talk Back. Dr. Reamer, it's all yours. Thanks, Chuck. A listener of Monitor Mondays asked last week whether the law prohibits leading questions in queries. David Glazer and Nicole Emanuel, lawyers, and I all concurred that there is no law, rule, or regulation prohibiting leading queries. However, there is more to this. One of the hardest things I had to do as a physician advisor was wrap my head around the term compliance. I finally settled on it indicating going along with the government's rules, regulations, and laws. However, in addition to external requirements, compliance can reflect following your organization's internal rules, policies, and procedures, and acting in accordance with ethical practices. Actus and AHIMA have collaborated for years on determining what constitutes compliant query practice, and their updated brief came out yesterday. I think it's awesome, and next week I will go over some important points with you. Today I am focusing on this leading query question, however. What is a leading query? This has been defined in previous practice briefs as a request for clarification that is not supported by the clinical elements in the health record and or directs a provider to a specific diagnosis or procedure. Attempting to guide the provider into desired documentation for reimbursement or quality reasons is also considered noncompliant because a provider might be led to pick the documentation which, which leads to the highest reimbursement or avoids a quality penalty, even if that isn't the truth. The pro- this prohibition against leading frustrates CEDASs and providers alike. Providers often implore, just tell me what to write. My recommended response is something along the lines of, I can't tell you what to write. Only you, as the clinician, can determine the diagnoses. But those clinical indicators may have a corresponding diagnosis, and here, education may ensue in a non-leading fashion. Do you think this patient has a diagnosis that explains those clinical indicators? By the same token, there are three kinds of queries. One, there are clinical indicators which clearly go with a codable diagnosis that you are just not giving me. This is the scenario which frustrates CEDASs. It seems like saying, dude, can you just please document acute blood loss anemia already should be allowed but it's not. Type two, there is a diagnosis that doesn't seem to be supported by the clinical indicators. Is it really clinically valid? And then the third one, which is the reason why leading queries are unkosher. There are clinical indicators which might correspond to a diagnosis, but I am not sure if it or some other condition is present. I need you, the clinician, to read my query and really decide what is going on here. There is no law, rule, or regulation which explicitly prohibits CEDASs from generating leading queries. The closest reference I found was in a CMS transmittal from 2014, which said, regarding DRG validation, and I'm going to quote, 
The purpose of DRG validation is to ensure that diagnostic and procedural information and the discharge status of the patient, as coded and reported by the hospital on its claim, matches both the attending physician's description and the information contained in the patient's medical record. Refer the case for a physician review if medical judgment is needed when changing the narrative diagnosis that the codes were based upon. Your reviewer must use his or her professional judgment and discretion in considering the information contained on a hospital's physician query form along with the rest of the medical record. If the patient, I'm sorry, if the physician query form is leading in nature or if it introduces new information, the non-physician reviewer must refer the case to the physician reviewer. This does not say that if the query is leading, consider it null and void. It says a physician reviewer must be recruited to render an opinion. Leading queries are not compliant, but they are not against the law. See my article in ICD-10 Monitor for some examples, recommendations on how to avoid it, and please read the practice brief yourself. It is our industry standard. Next week, I will go over some specifics, and I will answer Lisa's question about whether queries should be part of the legal medical record. Back to you, Chuck. We've got a couple of minutes now to ask a couple of questions, so Erica, let's take some of the questions that have been coming in while we've been on the air. Okay, we have a couple of questions for John. Um, My question is, do only critical access hospitals have swing bed designations, or can other hospitals have them as well? I believe that the swing bed is pretty much for critical access hospitals, although, uh, as, as I mentioned, it is something that occurs in rural hospitals, and it may very well be for those hospitals that have beds under 100, under 100 patients. Uh, but pretty much, I'm familiar with it only being a term for critical access hospitals. That makes sense. Um, For swing beds in hospitals, does the hospital need to follow the normal PDPM guidelines, which is the patient-driven payment model guidelines? The answer to that is somewhat confusing, and I would refer people to, uh, there's actually a Medicare fact sheet called Administrative Level of Care Presumption under the PDPM. And in essence, the background says that the SNF PPS includes an administrative presumption whereby a beneficiary who was correctly assigned one of the designated more intensive case mix uh, classifiers on the initial five-day Medicare-required assessment is automatically classified as meeting the SNF level of care definition up to and including the assessment referral date for that assessment. And it goes into a little bit more detail uh, that, that talks about why it's important. And realize that First, if, if SNF uh, services are being provided, that there must be that three-day inpatient qualifier for Medicare patients. Now, the waiver, uh, still is, there still is the waiver, but many hospitals that I have spoken with are actually not, not using the waiver. They are actually doing the three-day SNF qualifier in order to provide the services appropriately and not worry about after-waiver audits that may occur. The last thing that I will add is that um, I mentioned the case mix classifiers. 
there are, there are two parts to this article, uh, and I and if need be, I could provide the link to it. Um, the the for services furnished prior to October first, two thousand and nineteen, they list all of the services, uh, and there's there's a long list of that. For services furnished on or after October first, the following classifiers under the patient-driven payment model talks about the, those nursing groups encompassed by extensive services, special care high, special care low, and clinically complex nursing categories. I would refer to anybody who would like more information on this to check out this, this actually CMS document because it can provide a, a lot more information than I can in this short period of time. Thanks, John. After the open comment period on the compliant query practice, is there a chance that the document will be updated based on the comments, or is this really going to be the final draft, Melissa? Well, absolutely. That's why we're using this open comment period. We want to make sure that this update is um, the best it can be. So after this open comment period, if changes are needed, they will be made. And um, But this is pretty close to the final draft, but that's what we're using this open comment period for, to make sure there's nothing in there that's ambiguous um, and make sure it's clear. We spent a lot of time on this practice brief, but we still want to make sure that um, it's where it needs to be. Yeah, I have to say that it's, it's spending a lot of time on it really shows. I think it's a really great document, and I think that uh, people should read it and make comments if they have them. Chuck, back to you. Thanks, Erica and Melissa. Thanks very much for your additional comments on the uh, CDI practice brief. That's going to be a wrap for our 526 live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and I want to thank our panelists today, Colin Deegan, Ejack, Timothy Powell, Lori Johnson, Dr. John Zillum, and Melissa Potts, who reported our lead story this morning from Ahima, and a special thank you to my co-host, Dr. Eric Reamer, and remember you can listen to all of Talk 10 Tuesday broadcast on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play, and when you do rate us, give us a review. Until next Tuesday, I'm reporting for Talk 10 Tuesday and IC10 Monitor. Thank you, and have a great week, everybody. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.